Our series is Reframe, and it's born out of this season of the uh, Christian year that we call Eastertide. Eastertide begins on Easter, and it moves toward Pentecost and is composed of 50 days and eight Sundays. So the first Sunday of Eastertide is Resurrection Day. The last Sunday of Eastertide, the eighth, is Pentecost Sunday when the church was born. The season of Eastertide um, is, is great material and inspiration for this subject that we're discussing right now, and that is the reconstructing, the rebuilding of faith. And I, I might say just at the outset, a, a commercial for uh, Rob Bell's podcast called The Robcast. Just this week, I think it was just this week, uh, uh, his Robcast was with Richard Rohr, and Rohr uh, elucidated the seven alternative, fresh, new ideas of orthodoxy. And it's a real great, whether you agree with his final terms or not, it's a real great um, just kind of instructional and example of what it means to reconstruct faith. Well, the season between the resurrection and Pentecost was certainly that for the disciples. These were people who had Jesus framed one way and then completely lost that frame of reference only to find Him in resurrected form, helping them reframe a whole new understanding of Jesus. And as with all of the biblical stories, we don't think biblical stories are just one-time historical events that we mine a doctrinal orthodox meaning from and then submit to or live by the rest of our life. These are stories that invite us into age-old universal spiritual archetypes. And so by that, I mean we, all of us, in our relationship with the divine, in our relationship with life, the universe, these huge existential matters, life and death, we all live in a continual process, most likely, that I refer to as construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And I don't think construction, deconstruction, reconstruction happens in perfect trimesters. I don't think the first third of life is necessarily the stage of naive construction, and the second third is for deconstruction, and the final third is for reconstruction. Uh, there may be some sense of that, but to a great degree, I think for all of us, healthy spirituality is always about the business of deconstructing and reconstructing and reframing life as new information comes to us. So naive construction, that first stage we talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago, Naive construction or inherited faith simply is, I believe what others believe. And these others obviously are our authority figures, not just parents and grandparents and those in the proximity of you know, a familial setting, the home, but teachers and churches, synagogues, culture writ large. Authority figures impose upon us as children. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just the way things work. The same people who taught me this is a thumb and this is a ring and that's a pinky and this is a hand and that's a wrist and this is a desk and this is a phone. These were the same people who told me who I was, what was going to happen to me after I died, who God was, what God was like. And as children, we don't have intellectual, psychological defenses. We simply receive what the authority figures tell us, and that's the stage of naive construction. Psychologists tell us at some point, generally around adolescence or pre-adolescence, children begin the process not just of physically weaning, they begin that from the beginning, but children begin the process of psychologically, intellectually weaning. And in that process, uh, that process called differentiation, I think the best term for it is individuation. 
If a person doesn't move into a stage of differentiation and individuation from their parents and authority figures, what ensues is a pathology called enmeshment, where you're not living your own life, you're simply living the life and repeating the life of those before you. And in weak religious systems and in weak familial systems, dictatorial systems, this is not only something that happens, this is something that's lauded and encouraged. Give me that old-time religion. Why? Because it was good enough. It ain't good enough for me first. It was good enough for Pappy. Therefore, it's good enough for me, right? This process of individuation, differentiation, as I faced it in a particular religious structure that I grew up in, uh, not only was it not encouraged, it was called backsliding. You remember that? Apostasy, reprobation. If you dared think any other thought or even question the thought of the authority figures and begin to think for yourself, uh, the devil was tempting you, right? That was the devil doing that to you. If you had any other, dared had any other thought, it was the devil coming into your life. And, and if, if the ideas were not good enough to capably sustain you and keep you held and bound to them, then there were fear-based mechanisms to get you to stop that process. Well, I, I think the opposite is true. I, I don't think a person's backsliding, experiencing reprobation. I think they're experiencing good spiritual health. This is deconstruction. But this series is about reconstruction. Our church certainly, and we talked about this last week, I, I looked, at, looked at this idea of deconstruction, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction through several modalities, psychology, um, Christian scripture. But suffice to say, and this is what we looked at last week, Grace Point has been a safe place and will continue to be a safe place for those who are deconstructing, which is to some degree all of us. Questions are allowed here. Questions are encouraged here. Honesty above all else. Be true to yourself. You, you don't have to genuflect to my ideas or the elders' ideas or the ideas of the people sitting beside you. We're not trying to build a church. <clears throat> We're not trying to build a church of perfectly like doctrined people, but we're trying to develop something that looks similar to that community of people, that ragtag community of people that follow Jesus. And uh, I, I don't know that in the first centuries of the church, as we move toward orthodoxy and creeds and the imposition of those things for membership, I, I don't know that that was, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I don't think that it was at all what Jesus was intending. And I think the model that Jesus was intending, we could see very clearly in the lives of those who were on many different planes spiritually who followed him and were comfortable with him. I was always struck by the fact that Jesus was called a friend of sinners. I think I always heard that uh, in, in terms of the preposition to instead of the preposition of. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Jesus was a friend to sinners. Well, of course Jesus was a friend to sinners. Good people are good to bad people and broken people. If Jesus was simply a friend to sinners and we believe that Jesus was the embodiment of God, well, of course God is good and forgiving to sinners. But that wasn't what confused the religious elite. It wasn't that Jesus was a friend to sinners or that sinners were friends of Jesus. It was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. 
And the way that's posed means that when sinners were sitting around talking about their friends, they said, yeah, you know, Jesus, a friend of mine. The incredible thing isn't that Jesus was comfortable with them. The incredible thing really is that they were comfortable with him. If God could live in flesh and the most broken of people could feel comfortable with that flesh, with that person, that tells me something about the community that followed Jesus. It was a community of comfort, soul comfort and ease. Jesus was easy to be with, and that's what we've tried to create here, and a part of that is to allow for things like deconstruction. I've used several analogies for deconstruction through the years, um, and I do this whether I'm sitting out on the porch with people individually or here in the platform, but they're birthed out of my own life. I've said that deconstruction, the process of that, that unsettling process of losing your faith certainty, when your convictions begin to get shaky, and I, I don't know the mathematical term for this, but on an XY graph, I used to think it was a parabola, but my math friends tell me this is not a parabola, but as the line is rocking along and then it goes down into that dip, gets down to an inverted apex at the bottom and turns up the other side and you have that symmetrical U and then it comes back. You know, I, I experienced that kind of journey. I remember what it was like in a, the religious setting that I grew up in. I remember a sense. I can still taste the sense of what it meant to be 100% certain about an existential matter like whether or not there was a God. All the way down to whether or not my hair should touch my collar. I remember that stage of mind and soul where a particular religious idea could be held with 100% conviction and no doubt. Depending upon how severe the legalism or the fundamentalism of a particular religion or ideological group, depending upon that, I think, and depending upon the personality of the person who's involved, um, that certainty is only going to last so long, but can actually last a long time. I remember mine lasted, Jeff, till I was 20 years old. I literally can remember the sense of not having 1% doubt that there was a God, God's name was Jesus, and Jesus was very concerned about how long my hair was. I was 100% sure of that. I, and I remember... Life happens, so you're rocking along at, you know, on the y-axis at 100, and then life happens, and it, and it could be any number of things. It could be pain. It could be sorrow. I, I remember for me, it was just going to college and meeting people of other religions. It's amazing how sequestered we can be in religious groups and how high we can build our walls so as not to allow our children exposure to allow the devil in, you know, right? But I remember when the questions first came and you're rocking along and all you know your entire life is this security of certainty and you become quite addicted to it. Your entire structure all the way down to a cellular level is just dependent upon certainty. And the 100 all of a sudden dips, 99. 95, 88, 72, 63, 
And, and this graph could play out on any number of issues. But I remember that awful feeling and, and add to that the reality that I was conscripted to be a young preacher in that movement and was supposed to maintain that certainty and then imbue other people with that certainty. And Glenn, all of a sudden, I'm rocking along. And I remember by the time I was 28, 29 years old and was a young preaching pastor at a mega church here in town called Christ Church, I remember how desperately I preached. I had a I had a good engine, I had a good brain, and I had good oratory, and I was sincere. I had a good engine with all of that, raised Pentecostal, and by the time I was 27, I had preached 3,500 messages. It was, it was a world that created good preachers, so I had that, but the high-octane fuel was my own angst. And I remember, Doug, you stood up there in that choir, I would preach with fervor, and nobody probably understood that what was really driving this, the jet fuel, the high octane, was I was trying to convince myself. By the time I was 30 years old, that dip had fallen from 100 all the way down to the domain of really 50-50. And if I were honest with myself, there were even some, there were even some really important matters that I felt like were dipping below 50. And <clears throat> Somewhere at the bottom of that free fall, having no one really to, that I would choose to talk to, no one to minister to me and all of that, somewhere I can tell you, for whatever reason, it turned. And my life, the last 15 to 20 years, has consistently been a slow and graduated process back the, up, up the other side of that, what I call a parabola, the other side of that figure. And, I, you know, if, if you called out things and said, well, where are you now on this particular issue? Well, you know, I, I, the numbers would probably be, be different, but I can tell you that as you're moving up the other side, see, on, on this side of the graph, 7327 doesn't feel nearly as positive as 7327 on this side of the graph. You see what I'm saying? Because 7327 over here is in decline, 7327 over here is in the process of reconstructing. They're, they're, they're the same level of conviction, but you're moving in a different direction. And I've had lots of people ask me personally, what turned? you from deconstruction into reconstruction? What turned you? Several things. Um, and I'm just going to list them really quickly and let you out of here at 11.15. This is very personal, but this is as practical as I can get. And I have worked all week long just to look at my own life and say, you know, as a professional Christian, I, I think that's what preachers are, um, I have some responsibility not only to be sincere, but also uh, you figure out pretty quickly that shepherds are not above the sheep, they're in front of the sheep. And so if there's anything I'm supposed to do, it's go out and track the road and, and come back and say, this is what I've seen. So these are some of the things that I've experienced that have turned me from deconstruction to reconstruction. Because there are a lot of people in this congregation who are still in the process of deconstruction, and that free fall is not fun. 
And literally, as you begin to move down to the, you know, the 50-50 range, I watch you. I listen to you. It, 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 you're like on an on a oiled, greased slide, and you're trying as hard as you can, and you just can't quit the fall. And, and your life has descended into this sad place of when people ask you about your convictions, the only thing you can talk about is what you don't believe. And man, living the rest of your life in a beautiful universe like this with the hope of God and eternity all around us, to live the rest of your life with no sense of what you actually do believe, no sense of conviction. Now, I will tell you that in that free fall, as I turned, I would love to tell you that there was an immediate restoration of 100 zero. No doubts, complete faith. And that is not the case at all on almost any matter. But I, I hear Paul, the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life say something that kind of encourages me. He said, now I know in whom I have believed. Belief, knowing, is zero and 100. And I have very few zero and 100s in my life. Do you? Very few things get a zero or 100. But believing lives somewhere between one and 99. And that conviction scale of one to 99 is something Paul experienced. And Paul said toward the end of his life, he said, now I actually, now, presently, I actually know whom I have believed. And I will say that I, I think there may be a recuperation of a childlike faith that comes to a degree of certainty with people in the passing of time. I have met older people, sages among us, and I don't doubt them a bit when they talk, Roy, with certainty. I'm not there yet, but I, I think some people do recapture that. And I think it is a recapturing of a childlike certainty, but it's not a childish certainty. It's a childlike certainty. It's a second naivete with eyes wide open, actually knowing the questions and yet coming back to such a place of deep conviction. And then you graduate and perhaps move on into the next life. But these are the things that helped me turn. The first thing that helped me turn from deconstruction to reconstruction Mike, was I realized that this was not chiefly a theological process. I was setting Don, some of my friends like Don Brooks, 12 or 15 years ago, in between my lives of ministry. They, they collected money and they sent me off to a place called PCS, Psychological Counseling Services that were for people like me, people in leadership. And it was an intense uh, they sent me two different times for a week, but it was an intense time of just deep deconstructing therapy. And I was sitting there with Dr. Ralph Earl, who's the patriarch of the whole place. And Dr. Earl, uh, a Nazarene minister, now a UCC minister, uh, graduated from seminary with James Dobson, came out of that whole school, Nazarene school. His father was an eminent theologian. And now he was a therapist and a liberal Christian minister. And I was sitting with him and he said, Stan, this was at the end of the week. He said, talk to me about your spirituality. And I started talking about God. He listened for about three minutes and said, no, no, no. Talk to me about your spirituality. And I talked to him about the Bible and Jesus. It took him 20 minutes to finally 
help me understand that when he said spirituality, the natural starting place was not necessarily thoughts about a divine being. Spirituality, he told me, had to do chiefly with the finding of myself. And he's the first one, and I quote things sometimes, I don't, I don't even know where I picked them up along the way, but I remember he was the first one that told me. He looked at me and he said, Stan, did you know that the first word of many of our creeds was I? I thought the first words of our creeds were Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you know, things like esoteric ideas about the ether and the other. But he said, notice the creeds either begin with we, the plural form of I, or I. And he said, spirituality, salvation and all of that may be about the finding of God and God finding us, but spirituality at its core is about constituting a self. And he went on and he said, I love God is a fine phrase, but what's the first word of I love God? I. You got to have it, I to do the loving with. And he took me back to the old King James and the prodigal story. It's the only one that says it like this. And it's one of the reasons I love the King James, that old Shakespearean language. But the prodigal did not come to God. The prodigal did not come to the Father. The prodigal didn't even come home physically. You remember what the prodigal came to? All you who know the King James, it says that he came to… You have to have a self to come home with. Spirituality and the turn for me from deconstruction to reconstruction did not start with theology. Theology, big ideas about invisible beings, angels and demons, eternal consequence, these things were so abstract in the falling process, they, they are not the fingernails by which you can find grip with. You just can't. Frederick Buechner, who I was reading at the time, reminded, or told me something that I remind myself of frequently these days. Buechner said um, that a lot of theology is autobiography. And that is so true. And I just want to say this as plainly as I can possibly say this. I believe in spiritual direction. I believe in psychotherapy. I believe in doing soul work. I believe your family of origin, your psychological constitution, your personality type. I'm looking at my son right now who looks just like me. I, I, I think about our pathologies. I think about the things that Steve and Shirley Mitchell have transmitted straight through me that I don't even know they transmitted that got transmitted straight to them. For that reason, I just want to tell you, if you're in the deconstruction process, don't spend all your time just thinking about God and the Bible. Look inside your own soul. Look inside the home of God, your interior, and be willing to do work there. That is an indispensable part of Reconstruction. And the riptide of theological ideas is so severe that sometimes you just got to roll over on your back and ride the riptide out. And, and when you ride a riptide out, you know, you can swim over 20 yards and come back to shore safely. Or the riptide may have taken you to a whole new island. That's fun too. But quit fighting it and quit gazing into the heavens and take an inward journey. Find yourself a 12-step group. Find yourself a place to do your own work. Find an eye to come home with.
It's been a huge piece for me. I still do it. Second thing is, I decided in that process to expose myself to a broader universe through education, both formal and informal. And I started reading people. I started reading people who were outside the bounds of what I was trying to recover. I started reading things that weren't theological. I, st I just started stretching my brain. And I exposed myself to a universe because I grew up in this little group of people and we literally, like many religious groups, thought we were the ocean. And then all of a sudden, through a book or a History Channel program or something on PBS or an anthropology class, all of a sudden, in the middle of that ocean, you see this little mouth of water that goes off to the side, and you follow it. And, and that little brook leads you to a ford, which leads you to a creek, that leads you to a tributary, that leads you to a river, and then you follow that river, and it becomes the Amazon, and all of a sudden you're dumped into this body of water that truly is the ocean, and it's, 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 a, it's an amazing, scary process, but you look back and you realize, I thought I was in the ocean, and it was a mud puddle. But the only way upstream is to stretch yourself and expose yourself to other ideas, open your brain and your heart to other ideas. It seems counterintuitive, but I read and bibliographied my way upstream. The third thing that I decided to do was to expose my brain, my heart, to people outside of my world, not just through books and education, but I decided to find other people like me who came from realms of religious certainty, and I literally began sitting with Catholics, Church of Christ, fundamentalist Muslims, and it yielded for me, this exposure to other people at least yielded for me the realization that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one in this world going through this process. But just like I was raised in a little town in Arkansas in a little denomination that was absolutely certain it was right, Irvi Patel, this young woman that I met in college, she also was raised in an incredibly similar situation halfway around the world with a completely different idea about God. And when we sat down in the library that day and she began to tell me about her fears and her estrangement from her family and how angry her parents were that she was dating someone outside of her faith, and she began to tell me about how afraid she was of hell, I, I remember looking at her thinking, did you grow up in Paragold, Arkansas in the United Pentecostal Church? She didn't. She grew up in India in a religion that I barely knew anything about. But I was startled by the fact that changed the names and the places and the story was exactly the same. And a few more blinders fall off. The fourth thing that I did finally as I approached 50, I realized that my descent from 100 to 50 had not been helped at all by my desperate pleas for God to restore the 100. And somewhere in that process, I learned what I've been telling people for the last 20 years, 
and that is you've got to relax. You've got to let go of certainty. You've got to grieve it. My loss of certainty, that loss of control, that loss of knowing I was going to heaven, that loss of knowing exactly what was going to happen after I died, letting go of that was a grieving process. And Kubler-Ross was right. There was denial. There was anger. There was bargaining. And then there was depression. To, I, I realized I hadn't just been taught to believe certain things. I believed in believing. It, it wasn't just what we believed. We believed in believing. And, and yet my believing now had dipped way below 99 and there were things that I just, and I finally realized this quicksand I am not getting out of by fighting it. And I cannot find enough Sherpas at the base of this mountain to get me back up the mountain to where I used to be. And so that's when you relax, roll over, as I say, in the riptide and let it take you. That's where you come down off of the mountain, and instead of trying to get back to the top and put a flag down and say, we own the top of the mountain, you just build a humble cottage for you and God at the base of the mountain and trust that God lives there with you. And I finally gave up that reconstruction for me was going to be the replacing of one set of certainties with another. And I, I think that is what Richard Rohr calls the way of the fool. When the castle gets torn down and you spend that first phase trying to rebuild the castle, trying to rebuild your orthodoxy, trying to rebuild your beliefs, I'm not trying to rebuild my beliefs anymore. I'm not trying to replace my old orthodoxies with new ones. I'm pretty satisfied these days with the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I call myself a Christian. The first people who ever met him didn't know anything about trinities or eschatology or substitutionary penal atonements or virgin birth. They didn't know anything about it. John, they met a guy on the shore of Galilee and they said, never a man spake like him. And they didn't know how to frame divinity and deity and co-substance with the Father and the Holy Ghost from the beginning. They didn't know any of that stuff. What they knew was this man brought them into the presence of God. And I don't know that we have ever needed anything more from Jesus than just that. But we have built an entire substantial and complicated religion. And for me, my reconstruction has not been reconstructing who Jesus is. My reconstruction has just simply been to open my heart back to the experience of Jesus that I think the first people who met him experienced him as this profoundly life-changing man. And i got to tell you, 2,000 years later, I, um, I feel very... I feel very satisfied to take my, my friend's children into the water and say, will you follow him? Do you really want to be baptized like Jesus? I feel very… And you know why? It's not because I have figured out whether sprinkling versus immersion is right. It's because I, when it's all said and done and it's all stripped away, about the only thing that has reconstructed for me is I shake my head in the presence of Jesus and say, nobody has ever touched me that way.
ever. And it's far different than it used to be. I, it's far different than it used to be. I, I frankly, with a, with a loving, open, inclusive Buddhist experience the face of Jesus far more than I do with some Christian people who are exclusive and harsh and hateful. So Jesus plays on a lot of fields for me. Jesus, Glenn, can be in Native American smudge sprays. I mean, Jesus is a cosmic force so much bigger than the bronze-skinned Galilean that I had in the flannel graph. But I had to relax to begin to find Jesus. And quickly, I've already kept you a few minutes late. The fifth thing that I want to say to you is avoid cynicism. God have mercy. Some of y'all have been in this process so long, the free fall has gotten to you and you've gotten jaded and bitter and scared. And all that tough talk is, is just tough talk to shield a very tender center your soul longs for the divine, and maybe religion, like Drew said, has jacked that up for you, but don't get so angry that you live in the cynicism and just live the rest of your life spiritually talking about what you don't believe. It's just nowhere to live. I'm just being as practical as I can. Avoid cynicism like the plague. I love what Paul said. He said, I count not my life, dear, that I might finish my course with joy. I don't want to be that old person looking back saying, well, I've just seen too much. Life can be good. And make a deal with yourself, God. I did this, and it didn't work immediately, but I made a deal with myself, God, and the universe. Whichever one was in charge, I wasn't sure. I just put all the names out there I could. God, myself, the universe. I made a deal, and this was my deal. I closed off cynicism. And I, I, Frederick Buechner said something that caught me. He said, perhaps the miracle I believe by is not that I reach my hand into the darkness of doubt and feel the full embrace of God. It is that after not feeling that brace from in, embrace for many years, I cannot keep from reaching my hand back into that darkness. Perhaps the miracle I believe by is that I cannot give it up and it will not let go of me. And in the absence of full embrace, I sense the brushing of divine fingertips. Make a deal with yourself, God, and the universe just to leave your heart ajar and say, I'm not going to go running after it. But if there is an experience with the person of God, if there is an experience with a divine reality, I am open. Like Saul of Tarsus, knock me off of my donkey. Let a light shine round about me. Let it be a dream. I don't care but let me meet something real. And I personally can almost promise you, no matter how bad it feels right now, no matter how swift your decline is, if you will leave the door of your heart ajar, before too long, certain uncertain things will begin to happen to you. And they are uncertain to the extent that you could never convince another atheist of the existence of God by them, but they are certain to the extent that too many of them will happen in the course of your life for you to deny them. Just leave the door of your heart ajar. And the last thing I would tell you is make a list 
This is what Dr. Earl told me. He told me to make a list, and mine has become brown paper now, but I, I, wrote, I wrote them down this morning. Before I read them to you, I sent them to my son. These are the things you… I didn't send them to Stan Jr. because I say, believe these things. I send them to him, Rob, because I want him to know the process. And this, these are mine now. As I'm reconstructing, these are mine. Number one, I exist. And I'm with the French existentialist on that. I think I actually know that. And I think I do. So that means I don't know it. So, okay, it's at 99%. I think, therefore, I am. I exist. Listen, and you got to have your own. But I've been working on this for 20 years, and it's really not work. It's really just, this is not, spirit, this is not theo theological wranglings. This is soulish admission. I don't write down what I want to believe. Julie, I write down what I believe. And here's what I believe. Number one, I exist. That, that one I believe most. Number two, the universe and everything in it is more than material. It is spiritual, and by that I mean it possesses meaning. That one is in the mid-90s for me. Three, number two is true. The universe has meaning because the universe is a creation. It has a source, a creator. I'm satisfied to call that creator God, and God has imparted meaning. So the universe has meaning, too. Three, the reason it has meaning is because it is a creation, and the creator has imbued meaning into it. And that's, that one's right with two. That's up in the 90s. Four, creator and creation are inseparably united, inextricably united. That's a solid mid-upper 80s. As Anne Lamott said, I was 38 years old before I realized the B-plus was a good grade. <laughs> Five, creation is growing in its consciousness of that union little by little every day. Six, Jesus embodied the first five. Seven, I am a Christian because of six, because Jesus embodied the first five. He still plays as the primary spiritual guide in my life. I wouldn't have read that to a church full of people two years ago, but because I realized deconstruction and reconstruction aren't always about theological ideas, they're about therapy. It wasn't theology that helped me be able to stand in a pulpit and read that. It was good therapy because unless I'm honest with myself, I don't even have a self to give you. So I don't read that anymore thinking, do you all approve? I don't need you to approve. I just needed to send it to my son this morning before church and be thrilled to death that my son sends back, wow, I really like that. What do you mean, Dad, about Jesus embodying the first five? Does it mean God gave us Jesus in order to grow our understanding of our union with Him? Exactly, son. Jesus didn't come to start a religion but to reinforce what, we're, what we already have with God. Right. That's awesome. Is that what you're preaching about this morning, Dad? Life is good. Life is good. So… Honest, 
curious, courageous, grateful, humble, loving. These are better creeds. These are creeds of the heart, and this is the process of reconstructing. I hope that helps.